coming up on the payoff. I just finished up an incredible conversation with comedian Rich Scheidner. This is a guy who I've had on my radar for a long time. I just knew who he was through comedy and just being a fan of comedy. This is a guy who did, I think, like 14 appearances, something like that, 14 or 15 appearances on The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was the host and like seven people, seven million people a night were watching. Uh, he also got sober in 1985, and his stories about comedians hanging out with Sam Kennison, hanging out with Eddie Murphy, uh, obviously the drugs that, that he did, um, Rich, and the drinking that he did is unbelievably epic, and it led to him getting sober, and now he carries the message, and it's a, it's a great, informative, inspiring, and entertaining message, and uh, I'm privileged to share it with you guys today. And I'm always privileged to spend some time with this guy. Just came back from California. Kevin hosted. Here he is, folks. Kevin Souza. He's a young, funny man whose name I've been butchering all night long. He's from New Jersey originally. He'll be at the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach this week. And at the Improvisation in San Diego, the 11th of November, for one week. Would you welcome Rich Scheidner? You grew up. Uh, you grew up in South Jersey. I'm from Philly, so I'm kind of and I and I, you know, I hear it in your voice, in your accent. But yeah. You grew up in South Jersey, right? Yeah, that's right. Pennzoil, little town called Pennzoil, right across from Wilmington, Delaware, where the twin bridges are. And so what was life like at home for you? I mean, alcoholism in your family? Sure, sure. My dad was young. My mom was young when I was born. They were uh, 19. And um, my dad was struggling. You know, they had three kids from the time he was 25. Oh. And they were uh, they were just pushing, you know, pushing to try to succeed, kind of try to make a living, get by. My dad uh, grew up with his own sort of uh craziness to when he was growing up he, he was treated like the bastard son he didn't know he was but he was the bastard son and uh and so he he had, he had a drinking problem and and, and, he, and he had a lot of anger uh, and uh you know sporadic violence and that sort of thing do you find like you, you always hear this but like the comedian right like a, a lot of there's a lot of pain there in, in in some comedians in that personality growing up in a household like that did you find that to be the case with yourself oh yeah i was very angry very fearful very fearful, which, uh, you know, you can't express fear. You can express anger. At, at least I found it easier to express anger. Um, and, and he's living in fear. I mean, I had anxiety attacks. I had panic attacks. I was eight and nine. I didn't know what they were. Lay in bed, couldn't breathe. Um, so at eight, and, was, at eight, eight and nine years old. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this, uh, because we were still living down in, uh, by the river then. And, um, my brother and I were in the same room and I was on the top bunk and, uh, I, I just remember, I clearly remember that those, and I, they continued for a while. They continued until I started drinking when I was about 12. So you start drinking at 12. What's, is that the magic bullet? I mean, it was for me. It was magic. It was magic for me. Yeah. Magic. Everything I've ever heard other people describe was true for me. Yeah. All of a sudden I felt inside. I'd always felt outside. Even around my friends, I felt like they knew something I didn't know and I couldn't quite make a connection. And all of a sudden, I felt inside with everybody. I felt, you know, uh, brave, funny. I felt everything. I felt, you know, I could talk to girls when I started drinking. I, I, all the things I couldn't do before, 
I could do. I could dance when I was drinking. <laughs> All those things that you did at 11, 12, 12 year old, you know, I was 12 years old. So the, all those things, um, and and uh, it gave me fearlessness, which which is it gave me freedom, really freedom from my fears, which was huge for me at that time. Dude, same same exact thing. I tell people it was like my first spiritual experience was absolutely getting drunk, and I really felt like I had, had reached a whole a whole another level, and and I was con- like driven by fear too. Uh, you know, still am right when I'm not when I'm not kind of doing my thing, but. I was totally sure. fearful, and it took that fear away. Were, were you an outgoing guy to begin with, b- even before you drank, or did that switch turn on? I, no, I, th- I think you know around certain people. I mean, I I, I was I, I at, at certain times I would be obviously very quiet and withdrawn. If adults were around, I was very withdrawn and quiet. And but around certain people, when I was young, friends of mine told me I always was funny. Now, funny was important in my house. My dad loved funny. He had comedy records. If a comedian came on the Ed Sullivan show, everybody shut up. He loved Jackie Gleason, uh, the comedy. He loved comedy. So my dad gave me that. He had a sense of humor. He had a great sense of humor. Still does. And he was a funny guy. So in my household, laughter was a huge commodity. I mean, nobody got hit. Nobody got yelled at when there was laughter. And for me, you know, it got me out of a lot of trouble. Uh, it 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 had it had value to me at an early age. It's so funny I can relate because uh when when Peter Jennings or or you know live, Jim Gardner right Action News either of those came on we couldn't talk. My dad was like those guys were important. So now I'm I'm in the I'm in the news business. <laughs> you know it's it makes perfect See, sense right? to me. Yeah, it was right? it was like yeah. man and 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 it was totally subconscious. But it's like well those people are important. Oh. Did your dad get to I've see? Never here, I've never heard. I just want to say one thing. There was a, I don't know who said this, but someone said, if you want to be happy with your choice of careers, choose something that your parents loved but weren't great at. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. You'll get all the attention you need, right? You'll get the attention of validation from them, but you also you'll succeed where they didn't succeed. That's a great feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so your father is sober now, by the way. Yes, he is. So you got sober He's before sober. him? I got sober about three years before him. I made amends to him, and then he came back and made amends to me. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah, I certainly didn't think I didn't, certainly didn't think of getting sober was going to lead to him getting sober. But it, it, it in a, he told me uh, that it did. My amends to him pointed out to him without me saying it. He said he never said anything I did. You only talked about your thing. But all I, he could think of when I left was all he had done to my mother and my brother's sister and myself. That's all he could think about. And uh, it sort of led to him getting sober. Did he start going to meetings and stuff? Yeah, yeah. He got in, in our hometown in Pennsville. He did. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. So you you get sober yeah. in '85, but before that, there's a lot of comedy. There's about eight years of it. In '77, you start professionally. Yeah. How did you get started? I mean, no, I, I started professionally in '79, but my first time on stage was '77. Okay, but 77. I had like two two four years in in Washington D.C. doing stand up. Um, I, I just, I was funny in law school. I was in law school and, and one of my classmates, Howard Vine said, you were always being funny all the time. Made professors laugh. You, you, you were funny. And so he, we came back from winter break, uh, over, you know, January 77. And he goes, I'm taking you down. You're going to do comedy. I don't think we knew called stand up. I don't think we did. 
we just, I was going to go do a comedy thing by myself on stage at this coffee house in Washington, D.C. The Iguana Coffee House. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, Roberta Flack had had sort of been discovered there. So they had some sort of like local fame to it. Yeah. Like it it drew, it drew people. Uh, But yeah, that's where I did it first time. How the hell, what, what is that like? Because I think we're, our environments now are sort of controlled, even though they're not. So, you, you know, you spent your career, or at least the early stages of it, right? You're opening up for, for rock rock and roll groups, or, yeah. or, or you're performing at a coffee house, places where they're not expecting comedy. You're you're posting up nah. and starting to do no, comedy. No, you, no, 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 this, this was 1977. There were showcase clubs, which I wasn't aware of. There were, I, I didn't wear, I wasn't aware for a year. I was doing it for a year before a friend of mine told me, you know, there are young comics at clubs up in New York City. There were Los Angeles and New York City. There were scenes in San Francisco. We didn't know about them. You know, we, we I just started doing it. There were not comedy clubs all over the place. People weren't aware of it. When I w- used to walk on stage opening up for rock bands, whatever, people look at me like, what are you going to do? You have no instrument in your hand. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, it was, yeah. it was it, half the time they didn't even introduce you as comedians. Please welcome uh, opening act Rich Scheidner. Like they, I would come out there and do what? A handstand? I mean, they didn't know. They thought you were a it magician. Was not, it, was not as, it was not as imbued in their consciousness that a, a person with just a mic was a comedian. Like now, if you see, it's iconic, right? If you see someone standing there with a mic stand in front of them, you just think stand-up comic. Yeah. yeah. What was the drinking like back in, in D.C. before oh, you man. moved to New York? No, oh, man, I, I was doing what I was doing. You know, look, I, I didn't have the money for cocaine, but I, I got it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I dr- drinking was always part of the game for me, although I didn't drink before. When I, went. I knew I was an alcoholic before I was an alcoholic. And I tried not to do drugs or drink before I went on. But, of course, I, every time I, – look, I can tell you a story. 1981, I opened up for Peter Tosh. He yeah. was one of the original whalers, right? Sure. So Bob, Bob Marley died, and Peter Tosh went back out on tour. So I'm opening up for him at Washington, D.C. I'm so excited. I'm a huge whaler fan, and it was a couple thousand people. I forget it was at D.A.R. Constitution Hall, someplace like that. Rich Hall, another comedian, he calls me up and he goes, uh, listen, I just opened up for them in Philly. Whatever you do, don't go near backstage. <laughs> I got a contact tie. I can barely do my act. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, well, Rich doesn't smoke as much weed as I smoke. You know, <laughs> I figure I got immunity built up, so I'm not worried about it. Backstage, you know, the night of the show, I'm chain smoking and pacing, and they, they pin me as the stand-up comic easily, you know, the opening act. So, all of a sudden, and then they've been around guys with dreadlocks. <laughs> These guys go, hey, hey, funny man, come over here. And I walk over, and a guy hands me a burning baseball bat. <laughs> I, I'd never seen a joint this big in my life. And plus, it, it was it was real Jamaican weed. I'd only been smoking Jersey, you know, dirt weed. I mean, it was just, it was shake weed. We used to call it shake weed. It was just nothing but leaves and, and stems and seeds, you know, with the buds. I took two hits of this thing, man. And the next thing you know, I, I was being introduced like I was underwater. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. My friend said, I walked out, I laughed for 15 minutes, and I left. That was it. That was it. I mean, you know, the only thing that saved me was the audience was high as I was, and they were laughing at what they thought I was laughing at. I, don't know. It was, I had those. I went on stage tripping on acid. My, my girlfriend and I were were. Uh, camping down in Assateague with some people. We were tripping on acid. I had a show that uh, two, you know, then two nights, but we kept tripping for two days. I show up at the cellar door. 
I'm high on acid. I go on stage on acid, just ranting. And, you know, I'm lucky that it was just this time when, if you were on stage then, all you had to do was be interesting because they had no expectations of like laughs per minute that should be like bang, bang, bang. They, mm-hmm. they knew they should get some laughs, but they didn't have like, you know, if you got a few laughs, you, you could get by. And that's what saved me sometimes when I first started. I just got a few laughs. Well, dude, you were getting by. I mean, you started to experience a lot of success. And you, I've, yeah. I've heard you mention something. Um, you, you know, it worked for you, right? Like the drugs and the alcohol. It's got to be an interesting situation to be in where your career is going up, up, up uh, with your usage. Uh, did you feel yeah, like it yeah. was fueling some of your success maybe in your creativity? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought and for a long time I thought um, I was creative because of the alcohol and drugs. And it took me a while into my sobriety before I realized I was funny in spite of the alcohol and drugs. They they helped at a certain point, then they stopped helping. Mm-hmm. Now, some people may make them work for them for a long for time, forever, whatever, but they started working against me. And I had such a creative burst when I got sober. But for early part of my career, look, when you're moving from town to town and there's a loneliness thing, you're, you're a gunslinger coming into town. So the alcohol and drugs helped you bond quickly with local people, right? Obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it eased your entrance and exit into these places where you're just coming in doing two shows and leaving. So that part of it, it helped. It was a, obviously social lubricant and all that. And, and the weed and the acid, I'm sure I came up with ideas when I was on them, but I've come up with better ideas and yeah. I was able to execute them better when I got sober. So, I mean, you know, I, I use different things to look, I need to change perspective. That's what a lot of creativity is, is, is changing your perspective and you get, and so I use different things. Now I run, I meditate, I do different things and it get, gives me uh, a change in perspective and it gives me ideas. Yeah, it takes a little bit though, right? I mean, you have to. It's, it's oh, doesn't... Well, it doesn't. It, it takes a little bit. Yeah. I was I was so pissed off and angry when I first got sober. I would throw the mic down and walk off. I was frustrated. One time, a friend of mine, he's sober now, Tony. I don't want to give him last name, but anyway, Tony, he was like just like I was sober and he was sober around the same time. We didn't know each other, but he was like testing out, looking at comics to see whether he wanted to get into this thing. Now he's sober. Now he's an actor. And he's in an improv one night in Los Angeles, and I'm on stage, and I'm angry, I'm ranting, and nobody's laughing. And finally, he laughs at something, right? Like, he laughs at something. I said, he said, I turned and looked at him, and I went, what the hell are you laughing at? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like, I don't know, I thought it was a comedy club. I thought I was supposed to laugh, you know? Yeah. What it is... took a while. It was a transition to, to, to go from performing when I always had coke or, or knew I was going to be drinking afterwards to, like, being stone sober. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it must have been crazy. I, mean, I want to get to that, but I kind of want to go over your trajectory. You go up to New York from D.C. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. that's where the clubs are, right, at, at that point in time. Yeah. And, and this boom yeah, yeah, yeah. is starting to happen. What What is it like for you on, on stage and off stage when you go to New York and you start playing there? Well, obviously, I, I went there because I knew that's where you know, it's like playing tennis. You, know, you want to play against the best to get better. And who who was up there? there? Jerry Seinfeld was up there. Bill Maher was up there. I mean, these are names you know now. Larry Miller. There were, there were Richard Bells who owned, he was the king of Catch a Rising Star. There were so many great comics, young comics up there at that time. Um, I was just excited to go up there and compete there to, to see how I did. I mean, obviously, and to learn. What was I the was drug? I was going to learn. What? I did learn. I watched them. I, I, I sit in the, 
If I wasn't on stage, I was in the back of the room watching. Yeah, I heard you tell a story when you, you know, you, you whether it was, I guess it was still when you were in D.C., but you saw Seinfeld and you were like, all right, I got a little, I got a little well, more work to do. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, well, it was in, like I told you, I was in 1978. I've been doing it for about a year. And a friend of mine from law school came to see me where I was performing in a place called El Brookman's where Lewis Black, myself, Kevin Rooney, Ron Zimmerman, a lot of comics uh, who came out of the D.C. area who had professional careers were down there performing. And um, John Heyman, I mean, I can name I'm going to miss some T.P. Mulroney. But, but um, uh, she says, oh, you know, there were comics up in New York doing this. I was like, what? She says, yeah. So she took me up next weekend. We went up to New York City. And we couldn't get in Catch a Rising Star. That was up our east side on First Avenue. And I couldn't get in the improv over 44. Because well, why? Because this packed. boom is happening. They were sold out. They were sold out. They were sold out. Okay. Saturday night. It was Saturday night. They were sold out. So we go over to the comic strip. We got in. And, you know, I'm cocky. I'm, I feel like I'm one of the best, about the best in D.C., you know, at the time. You know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm making money, you know, I'm the opening act for this. And then I sit there and I watch comic after comic, the comic strip. I'm like, I'm as funny as this guy. I'm as funny as this guy. And then Seinfeld come on, came on. And, he, and I was like, at the end of his 15, 20 minutes, I went, I got some more work to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was good. He was good. You could see he had the good, good right at the beginning. You know, he was a master writer and, and performs like, it's like, you know, like, David Bowie, he he moves sufficiently. Every bit of his performance is there's is no fat in Seinfeld. Yeah, there's no fat in his performance in Seinfeld. Was like that. He was very economical with it, with his performance, and it, it fit his material perfectly. Yeah. What's it like for a guy like you know? Because I, I know you ended up running in, in the same crowd with with him. Uh, you know, he's kind of a clean comic. Doesn't seem like he's on drugs. But then I'm sure you're hanging out with Kinnison. And you, you, how do you guys mix worlds or, or, or was there a mixing of worlds socially? Was there that respect like, Hey, we're all comics. Whatever you do is your business. Let's talk comedy. Yes. If you talk comedy when you're around, look, you know, I, I, I certainly gravitated and hung out with people. Uh, my, my buddy, Mike McDonald from Canada, Kennison and other people who like to drink and do drugs. And, uh, but if you're around somebody, you're sitting there at a table and, say someone like Seinfeld is there, you know, uh, we talk comedy. I mean, people talk comedy all the time. We were so obsessed. That's one of the reasons why I knew I had to go to New York because people there, there were a hundred comics up there as obsessed as I was about it. And so it was, it was, the, it was the place to learn. I got so much great advice. I got, I mean, I talk about, it. I got great advice from Seinfeld. I got great advice from a lot of, there was a guy up there named uncle dirty who was a contemporary George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And he was hanging out at the showcase clubs. He was 20 years older than all of us. And his advice was, it was like, it was so good. His advice was so good. So what, a, what did he tell you? You remember? He go, oh my God, so many things. He, you know, he, he just would go, and people would go, like, when do I move to LA? Cause at the time that was the thing, right? Cause there was nothing happening in New York city and television really. So the big question one, one day says you move to New York city when they say, Mort will pick you up at the airport. <laughs> you mean you moved to L.A.? That's, yeah, that's yeah. when you moved to L.A. You moved to L.A. when they say, Mort will pick you up at the airport. <laughs> so then, because Carson was out in L.A., so that's kind of where the whole scene was moving towards. Yeah, at that, that, that time. And then we, when we moved out in 82, this was before Letterman Show came up. And there was really, we used to do things sometimes, we, we became uh, my, my ex-wife, Carol Liefer. And yeah, I, Carol Liefer, huge became, writer, comedian. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, wrote ep episodes of Seinfeld. 
She's uh, mm-hmm. she's big time. So you guys must have been a a power couple, <laughs> right? Come on, I mean, if I we were was... just two struggling comics. We were struggling comics, but we 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 look. It was you know there's there nobody keeping the hours that we were keeping. You know, for for her, what other guys that she she's exposed to stand up guys. You know, no no woman or 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 guy at that time would want to hang around with us get involved with this. I saw it happen. I saw people get involved with civilians, you know, like this one guy, he keep make, meeting girls in Jersey, you know, and he'd bring them in and they'd sit through the first show and the improv watching. Cause that's all we want to do is do shows. The dates that they go on were always coming to watch him perform. Yeah. And they'd watch the first show, you know, and they'd laugh like crazy. Then you see him back the second night watching them and wait a minute, just doing the same stuff. And they're kind of <laughs> little chuckles and then the third they're just staring at him <laughs> and then the fourth you go where's that where's your girlfriend yeah we're done <laughs> <laughs> yeah the fourth date was over you know that was it i mean we, we were we were obsessed so pairing up with another comic it, it 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 was good in a lot of ways you know you're keeping the same hours you're you're, you're obsessed with the same thing you're talking comedy all the time you understand short short language you know was it was there drugs and alcohol in that relationship? <laughs> was was she was she anywhere was she anywhere? No, she was no no no. I mean, no, I'm sure no. you cast a pretty big shadow, right? As an alcoholic. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that that is exactly Pete. That is the perfect way to put it. I I cast a big shadow. A lot of women were able to drink and do drugs in my shadow. <laughs> And, and not be noticed, you know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody was going to notice you doing drugs and drinking if you were hanging around me all the time. So <laughs> like, because I'm the big mess. I'm the big, you know. I'm I'm the guy that's, you know, I'm the guy that's got to make sure that there. And I, I, you know, uh, so yeah, I was the party captain. <laughs> and you get you get sober kind of early. And before we get to, to to when you got sober in '85, you're doing like you said. I mean, you're going up on stage on acid. You're going up on stage on coke. Was that something? Did you ever do like a huge show, like very high on cocaine? Like I know you were on Carson. Like was it was there drugs involved with that? No, I had I had uh, again. You know my my thing was I I, tr- I knew I was like I said I knew I was an alcoholic before I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew if I started it was a problem. I did I did the. Uh, um, when I did cars, my first cars, I had cocaine in my pocket. I did not do it before the show, but I wanted to make sure I had it for after the show. Okay. Uh, when I did, I did uh, I got a couple. Well, here's a story. So, uh, Merv Griffin show, right, was a daytime talk show like like Ellen. Sure. And so you get bumped. When you get bumped, I mean, they said they, they don't have enough time for you, so we're going to bump you, and uh, you'll get paid. You'll get paid uh, whatever it was, six seven hundred bucks uh, after minimum, and uh, we'll bring you back another time. So. I, I'm in West Hollywood and the studios literally a mile from my apartment. And I got bumped like day, the next day, two days later, bumped again. I mean, I got bumped like eight times in a row. Now Merv Griffin had a, a, a bar backstage, right? in a, a green room bar that was fully stuck. They had a bartender, like a guy with a bow tie. Whatever. <laughs> they had like a regular old school bartender. You could order any drink you want and this guy can make it. And the show was and live so- during, during the day. So it was live, yeah, okay. live during the day. I had to go over there, whatever, 4.30. They'd say, you're bumped. I'd have a couple of cocktails go home. I made 700 bucks, clean and easy in the city. After about seven, eight shows, I start thinking, that's my job. <laughs> I go over, they bump me, they pay me. I have a couple of cocktails to start the evening, and I go on my merry way. So one, <laughs> about the eighth or ninth show, I go, you know what? They're going to bump me anyway. 
why wait until after, you know, let's have a drink right now. <laughs> so I start drinking. Then, of course, you know what happens. The, yeah. the town coordinator comes there and says, you're on next. <laughs> <laughs> I go, oh, shit, I'm, I'm slurring my words. I knew. I knew I was drunk. I knew. So I go into the bathroom, and now I'm, now I'm playing that game. Yeah, trying to even out, right? Yeah, trying to even it out, which, you know, <laughs> so I used to joke, you know, a little – a little coke to go up, a little booze to go down. If I was really good at the end of the night, I could spend four hundred dollars to be straight. Yeah. <laughs> um, unbelievable. It, it's not. It's not happening, man. I, I get. I get too jacked up. I come out. I'm. I'm. I'm I could. I could tell. I always had a problem with enunciation anyway. But I start talking and I look at the audience and they're like, they're confused. <laughs> What's he saying? Yeah. He's talking too fast. He's spot welding words together. Did you find that to be the case? I, I, whether I read that or heard that, like on Saturday Night Live, a lot of those guys doing blow, right? And and they yeah. weren't as funny as when they weren't doing it because they would miss their mark or they were just too edgy. It, look, the only thing cocaine it gives you that feeling of and that, that rushing of furia. This is my experience with coke, and of course, like the George Carlin thing, it makes you feel like a new man. The only problem is the first thing a new man wants another line of cocaine. <laughs> that old George Carlin joke. But for me, it, it never worked for me creatively. I never wrote material on Coke. I only, it was a talking drug. Now, since I was in the talking business of comedy, you would think it would work great, but I already had adrenaline when I got on stage. I already had adrenaline. I still have that today. Yeah. I have it right now just talking to you because I, I, I have adrenaline. So when you have the adrenaline and the Coke on top of it, it was just out of control. It, it's just talking drug, and and it's a it's a, a narcissistic drug. You, the only thing you ever talk about is yourself, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's yeah, yeah. Well, that's I mean, it's not a good drug. It's not a good. It was not a good performance drug for me. Yeah, that was kind of what I was getting at. I I, I was wondering because again, you said it did it did assist you uh, to a degree, right? The drugs and alcohol, or at least we think that they do, right? Yeah, what we, cocaine did for me, cocaine for me before I had cocaine. When I was young, I, I found out very quickly I was a blackout drunk. Now, if you know blackout drunks, I've woken up in car crashes. I've woken up talking to police, right? So you're yeah. kind of like, oh, honey, officer, wait a minute. Who is it? I don't know who you're just talking to, but I'm here now, so catch me up. Where are we? You know, I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't have a, you know, blackout is the scariest thing. And I was young. I found um, uh, black beauties and uh, white crosses, Christmas trees. They were you know, amphetamine speed, yeah. time, right? So there wasn't meth like it is today. So, but these pills were available, and I got, I found them, and I get them, and I had to have them. Or I, was a, I became, you know, I was a drunk driver, but with the speed, I became a wide awake drunk driver. Yeah, that that was one of my favorite like things, food. mixing the speed, the tablet right, form of speed, right. yeah, and and alcohol. Right. It was just because some right. something about it, you felt like you were in control, but you weren't. Uh, you weren't. No, but yeah. my problem again was. With the speed, is well, I was patient. <laughs> so imagine that an alcoholic being impatient. <laughs> so I, I take it, I take a black beauty, have a couple of drinks, and then I didn't wasn't feeling it. So I, I, I double up. I take another one. It's not fair. I then I have three. Now I got three in me, and now uh, and then they hit, and now I'm like amped, and I got to try to bring the alcohol again. That balancing game. For some reason, cocaine. Again, I love the ritual of cocaine. The chopping it up, making the lines all that sort of thing. And I felt like I could um, moderate the intake better. Mm -hmm. 
that sounds, it's crazy, right? But yeah, of course. Really was my thought process. So uh, thought. I, I want to talk a little bit because people that are listening to this, you know, I think some people really do know comedy and some, some may not have the idea of how just huge that boom was and how huge it was to be on Carson. I mean, that was, that was it yeah. for, for, for you guys and girls. And I was looking at numbers before I, I came in here. Seven, about 7 million people or more would watch Carson, mm-hmm. like in your yep. heyday. And, yeah, and, yeah. and if you if you hit on Carson, that's it. You know, you're getting development deals and stuff, stuff that happened to you. What, what is that like going out there? Well, it, it, it was it was huge. I'll tell you how stressful it was. I mean, of course, I was drinking and doing coke. I managed to stop two weeks before my date. I, I stopped everything, right? I broke out in shingles. I was 31 years old. The doctor couldn't believe it. I walked in there. I didn't know what they were. These bl- bloody, painful blisters on my butt cheek and my the top of my back of my thigh. That's where they broke out on me. So I'm like a day before I'm doing tonight show. He gave, I had these medicated pant, pads I had to wear. You know, <laughs> uh, that's how that's how stressful it is that when you do your first tonight show. Back then, it was everything. You knew, first of all, you knew the whole comedy community was going to be watching. You knew everybody pretty much in comedy back then. You knew everybody would be watching because they all knew when a new comic was coming on. And you and you you felt like this was your big shot, you had a validation. Tonight Show was big-time validation. You know, I wouldn't have to explain to anybody else that I was working a club in Cincinnati or a club in Las Vegas. I mean, I was on the Tonight Show. That was validation. What is that like for an alcoholic and drug addict and, and their ego at the time? Once you do it, because you do it and it goes well. Yeah. So they'll go, they'll go, you're coming back. And he said, you're coming back in like two months. You're coming back pretty fast. Not like Stephen Wright fast. But for me, I felt good. And everybody told me, oh, that's good. You're coming back like in a month or something. You're, that's great. You know. Well, I, next time I come back, my disease has progressed, it, progressed you know, and my alcoholism, drug addiction, harder. I can't control it. And so I'm like the night before, I think I'm doing well because I'm not doing cocaine, but I'm drinking with Sam Kennison. You're drinking with Kennison? Sam, yeah, Kennison, he's doing the coke and we're going to party the next night. Yeah, and he's telling me, you know, because I've gone over my set for him. Of course, you know, I'm telling him what I'm doing. That my ending of my set is just not, it's, 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 there's no edge to it. There's no, that's Sam, you know, it's like, <laughs> you, you, you got this good material, this thing you're doing, this new thing you're doing. I had a bit about, uh, Jesus um, as an entertainer because we went and saw this band called Striper, which was a, a Christian metal band uh-huh. back then. And the guy came out and said, you know, Jesus was the first rock and roller. So I did a whole bit. I said, Jesus was a rock and roller. It means he was in show business. I must have an agent. You know, I had whole thing, him talking to his agent. I said, he had, he had tour jackets, you know, Jesus World Tour, 1BC. <laughs> you know, I had... I, you know, roadies get the wine jugs over to galley. We got a show tomorrow night, you know, yeah. so he says, Sam says, that's what you got to do, man. That's a killer. That's, that's a brilliant thing. So I went the next day, you know, I'm like hung over, jacked up on adrenaline. And they, you have to in. submit your set to them, right? So oh, they man, know. The set was set. No, yeah. no, the set was set. Yeah. You know, they, 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 I'm not a guy who's, I'm not Albert books. I don't have any kind of, David Brenner, you know, uh, leeway to do whatever I want. I, I had a set that was totally approved. I come in the next day, I'm trying to talk to Jim McCauley and let me do this Jesus the Entertainer as <laughs> my clothes, you know, because yeah. you can't do that. And Jim McCauley so is like the guy who oversees the comics on yeah, the show. Yeah, he was, he was the guy who oversees the comics. 
no, you can't do that. So then I go, you know, being an alcoholic obsessed, I go, well, I have this other new bit about, there was a guy, I can't his name was, oh God, I want to say Barney Clark, I think it was, but the guy who had the first artificial heart. Okay. That was a new thing. And I had a whole bit about this, getting an artificial heart. You know, they said, uh, you know, that he would, he would not, um, it wouldn't, it would impact his life. I said, it impacted his life. He had an 800 pound machine he was tied to. <laughs> yeah. said, it's got to affect his bowling game. He's got four guys pushing down the lane with him. Come on, guys, keep up. I'm trying to get a fair here. Right. <laughs> and then I had a whole bit about the defibrillator paddles, you know? And uh, so I talked Jim McCauley in approving me to let me do those two bits. Right. Just completely obsessed alcoholic. Uh, and I, I badgered him into it and he approved it. The only thing that saved me because Johnny Carson hated those two bits. He was a four pack a day smoker who oh. had living fear of heart attacks. So my last two bits were about heart disease and heart attacks. And, and uh, he, he hated it. And, and, and I wouldn't have got back on the show. Eventually I got back on the show. Cause when I got sober, Jim McCauley came over the end of that night. He, he rushed me out off the stage, backstage, rushed me in my dressing room, said, stay right here. I mean, he knew Johnny was pissed. Wow. Everybody did. And he said, stay here. And then afterwards, he came after the meeting in Johnny's office. And Johnny said, I don't want to see that guy again, basically. Jim McCauley comes back and says, um, Mike, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, it's my fault. I shouldn't have let you do them. But you're off the show. Then I got sober a year later. And McCauley, I didn't say anything. I never talked to him. I just got, I just, I'm just doing my thing. Macaulay sees me and says, your whole attitude has changed. You're a different performer and the new material is great. I'm going to try to get you back on. And he got me back on and ended up doing like 12 more tonight shows with Johnny. That's um, unbelievable. So, I didn't, that's, I didn't know that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a funny story. You know, talking about third step, right? Yeah. Okay. So when he, when he says, I'm going to try to get back on, I just got to go do a, 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 a Merv Griffin show. It's sort of like a, baseball player when they're rehabbing in the minors before they get back to the majors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So go to do a Merv Grush. I said, sure, no problem. So I go to do a Merv show, and uh, we're, I'm backstage with, with Les Sinclair, who was the comic handler on that show, and he says, listen, he comes up and he says, listen, um, uh, this audience out here is a totally uh, Jewish audience, all, all, all older people from a Jewish retirement home. That's okay. pretty much the entire audience. I'm like, why are you telling me this? I got a safe Merv Griffin shot planned here. And he's like, I don't even know why he's telling me this. So we go backstage behind the curtain. I'm, I'm the next performer. Diane Cannon is out there. Oh man. Yeah. And gorgeous. Yeah, Di yeah. Diane, she's promoting a movie. She had just done Jenny and Merv Griffin's like, this is a uh, tremendous work. Diane, tremendous work. Let's, <laughs> let's watch a clip. And they, they put the clip on all the monitors in the studio. It's her. She's in a concentration camp. She's in a death camp and Nazis are beating her up. <laughs> the, 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 then he goes, Oh, that's a great work. Let's bring out our next entertainer. <laughs> me. I'm blonde haired, blue eyed. I might as well have goose stepped out onto the stage. Here comes the job. Here comes the job. These people are in shock. It's, it's, hard. it's, it's like you could see them. I could see them just, they're in shock from what they just saw. And, you know, I, I, my first joke is nothing, nothing, gets nothing. And um, I, I remember that Seinfeld had said, maybe not to me, just that it said it, that, you know, if you 
your own your own TV and that joke doesn't work. Just look at the center camera, you know, the red light camera, and nod your head, kind of smile and not, and time out. They'll put the laughter in later. You know, you just give them a oh. pause there before you start the next one. I did that for five minutes. I mean, every <laughs> joke, nothing, <laughs> nothing. And so, you know, I was wanted. I wanted to leave. I wanted to break from my set and started doing, you know, crowd work. <laughs> yeah, and you're sober <laughs> at this time. Yeah, I'm sober, totally sober. I'm sober about it. Only about a year or so. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. This is before I did my my third tonight show. So, um, and I'm bomb. I bomb like you can't believe I bomb. I come off stage and Les Sinclair comes up to me. He's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know how to tell you. I I knew this could be a problem. I tr- I was a half warning I gave you. I should have told you everything. Uh, I'm so sorry. And I left. That's ah, okay, man. I'm not back on a tonight show. And you know, but I I call up my sponsor. I mean, I I am I am freaked. I'm pissed. I'm really angry. You know, God, thanks a lot. I'm doing the right thing. Look at, you know, yeah. and, um, and my sponsor's like, get to a meeting, get to a meeting and put your hand out to a newcomer. <laughs> what do you mean newcomer? I'm a year. So oh, yeah. go out there, go, go out there, go to a meeting, go to a meeting. And I call him back, you know, pay folks. These aren't cell phone times. You know? I call him back and I'm angry again. I want to meet. go to another meeting, go to another meeting, go to a meeting, go to a meeting. And, and, and I hear me doing, all I did was the three, third, first three steps and the th- first, third step prayer and seventh step prayer. I didn't even know what the seventh step was, you know. Yeah. But I'm just doing it. I'm just so he 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 got just go to a meeting. Go to a meeting. Your primary purpose is to stay sober, help somebody else. That's it. The rest of it's all bull. You know, just go, go. So I'm just going. I'm just doing what I'm told to do, you know. And uh a couple nights later, Jim McCauley comes up to me in the improv and says, I heard about your Merv Griffin shot. And I'm like, ready to go, well, man, I'm going to get out of town, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I got a U-Haul ready. <laughs> it's over. He says, no, no, you did, you, you, you did a very professional job. There's nothing you could have done other than what you did was a very professional job. You are ready to come back on The Tonight Show. So I, he gave me a date right then and there for a Tonight Show set. And, uh, so I did my third one by bombing on Murph. <laughs> Absolutely bombed. And I got back to tonight show. And that's and the, that that is the program. The, I gotta tell you this. I gotta tell you this one last thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did, they did fill in the laughter. You know, they put the laughter in. Like I got the shot on tape. Yeah. And it you can hear the audience laughing, right? I do a joke and him laughing. And every once in a while they cut to the audience and everybody's in shock. Like, where's the <laughs> laughter coming from? Nobody's laughing. <laughs> It looks like a ventriloquist act with an entire audience. But that behavior and the way that you carried yourself moved you to another opportunity yeah. on the Tonight Show, and it shows yeah. like we never really know. We don't know what's right, no. you know. Like that's why no. we need a sponsor. We need to work with a sponsor. Uh, you know, yeah. if you if you're doing the twelve step thing, if you know what, if you're sober, that's great. You know, I mean, but it, 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 look, I, yeah, it's 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 a. It, I got help. I got a lot of help from a lot of people. So yeah, let's go. I want to ask you about how how did you bottom out? Like, what was what was the thing that sent you over the edge and, and got you sober? Well, I, you know, I crossed every line I ever put to cross. You know, I I won't steal. I stole. You know, I I, I won't I won't uh, you know won't sleep with my buddies' friends, girlfriends. Or you know, I did that. I did everything. You know, I did every. I crossed every line. Is when my my behavior became unacceptable to me and because I didn't care about being un- unacceptable to you. It just got to the point where I, I couldn't stand. I could really, I lost my sense of humor. That was the biggest thing. That was my loss that I could not, I could not live without. I, I, I valued my sense of humor. It was not just my profession. 
it's it's what I thought was the best thing about me was I had a sense of humor about things mm-hmm. and I'd lost it. I remember sitting, this is true, you know the, the comedian Sinbad? Sure, yeah. Sinbad and I were working in uh, Texas. We did like, they hired us, I don't know how we got on the same bill, but they hired us almost like we, we did a little tour together. We started off doing the, uh, they had a prison rodeo show. It was a yearly event in Texas. Okay. I think it was in one of the prior Wilder movies, movies the prison rodeo. And so they hired us to enter, do entertainment for it. And then we did a couple of one-nighters, and we worked our way over to Austin, Texas, where we did a week at the comedy club in Austin, Texas. Uh, this is 85. He was, he, was on, he was on fire. He was yeah. totally straight. Yeah, this is around yeah, 85, beginning of 85. And this is right before probably he got that A, a Different World sitcom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just a middle act. He was my middle act. Okay. And he was tough to follow because he was on fire. I was bloated, you know, drinking and drugging too much, oh, yeah. smoking too much. Uh, uh, and I was, I was, it was affecting me. It was affecting my performance. And he was making me, he was the first comic I ever worked with is the middle who made me work at that point. And he was really, he was, he was on fire. He loved what he was doing. He was clean, no drinking. I never saw him drink, do any drugs, anything. And one night we were sitting in a bar in Austin after the show and I'm down there at the end of the bar and the end of the table and I'm I'm just spending a lot of time in the bathroom doing blow and coming back and drinking, you know, shots of whiskey and smoking cigarettes and I'm miserable. Nobody's really sitting next to me. Everybody's down the other end of the table laughing their butt off with Finbat. He's telling jokes and stories and he's laughing, he's engaging with people. And it, it hit me, you know, I looked and I went, that's where I think I used to be kind of like that. And I want to be like that again. And um, enjoying this journey we're on here doing stand-up comedy and traveling. And I'm not enjoying it anymore. And the difference I can see is not that he's younger than me or that he's black and I'm white. It's that he's not drinking. <laughs> he's not doing drugs. It was, it was like clear to me. And that, now other people had said things to me before. People say you had a problem drinking. Uh, Brett Butler did, because um, she was uh, sober, right? Did. Yeah, she was. She was yes, and other people did. You know, so, and people who weren't necessarily sober, they go, "You got you you make, you got a problem drinking." Any and comics I would just moved other people? Yeah, I would just move around in different circles. Any comics besides? Because uh, that's interesting. Uh, Brett Butler was sober. Anybody else? Any other sober comics that maybe you saw go before you? Because I think. I can't no, even imagine. No. Okay, yeah, because I'm thinking no. about it. Like I, you know, we all have our bullshit that keeps us drunk and using, right? Yeah. I would think yeah. being a, being a stand-up comedian, that's that's one very good reason I could talk myself out of getting sober. Uh, yeah. How do you how do you muster up whatever um, to, to to make that step to take those action steps well, to say I'm going to stop? There were once I got sober, there were a couple of guys. I don't want to break around and anonymity, but there were a couple of guys already there ahead of me. And one of them, the guy who was my Eskimo, Mark S. Mark took me off the bar stool. I mean, I was on a bar stool in the improv, you know, every night drinking and saying I got to quit drinking. And Eddie, the bartender, got sick of hearing me, you know. And I was, I was, a, I was a problem. I would yeah. kick the jukebox. I didn't like the song. I'd shake it till I moved the song. You know, I mean, I was just a, I was a pain in the butt. Yeah. And and every time I was drinking, I said I shouldn't be doing this. I got, I should, I got, you know, I, I, every day I'd get up saying I, I can't. I'm not going to drink today. I had to drink before I left the house to get to the improv. I had to have a drink or two. And then 
I'd get there drinking. I'd do my show, whatever that was, 15, 20 minutes. And I'd come there and I'd sit in the bar saying, I got to. So he took me to my first meeting. So he, he was, Mark was like, I think like a month or two, only a couple months sober. And he took me to my first meeting. And so I knew somebody, I used to drink with him. So I knew somebody. I want to ask you too, how, how do you get back up there? Like, how do you get the courage to go back on stage? I'll tell you a story. And this is like, I, yeah. I'm just going to put it out there. So when I got so, <laughs> when I got sober, I started to yeah. do, I don't, a stand-up comedy. I would go, I would go, um, to stand up New York. I was living in, I, I lived in a halfway house. And then after that I lived in Jersey city and I was working for this guy who I went to rehab with. And you're just going to, I'm crushing meetings. And I'd been in, in broadcast <laughs> before this. And uh, so I would, I would, you know, I would, I would go over a set and I, obviously I didn't have the, <laughs> nearly the experience you did. I'm just saying it was the hardest thing in the world. I think I've ever done sober. I mean, literally, yeah. I would fucking think about it all day, Rich, and I would be like, "Oh my god, I got like literally." That's why I I couldn't I couldn't carry on. I, I mean, I was probably terrible too, but the nerves were such that I was like, "Gosh!" So I, I, that's why I ask you the question: How how did you get back up well, there sober? I, first of all, it was my it was my business, my career, my my job, my my passion. I still had that passion, like I said one of the reasons I got sober was I wanted my sense of humor back and I had muscle memory. I did have memory of success. I had material that still worked, you know? Uh, and so it was just a matter of me getting accustomed to going up there sober and, and, and not just like, cause I, I'd been on stage sober, maybe hungover or at least some chemical still in my body from the night before, but I, it's not like I'd been on stage drunk or high every time. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, although that, that was, at the end, I, I know I was drinking on stage and going on stage high. I know that. But, but it was what you, it was I, I what you did. Memory. It was your job. Like it's it was what I did. It's yeah. what I did, man. So there was no question I was going to continue doing it because I got sober so I could, could get back to doing it and love doing it. Yeah. That's why I got sober. I mean, I, I wanted to get back to that. Well, what was it like for you for your career to continue to, to take off? Because it like you get sober and then you're doing like, and that's a perfect time for comics, right? Because they're development deals, right? Sitcoms, you're probably getting. Oh my God, it, it was. It things sort of happening. I mean, I got, I got, it, it, it sort of happened. I got the Tonight Show back. Then I got Letterman. Then I got, um, you know, rolling married with children yeah. and the pilot in the first seven episodes. Bever- of Beverly Hills Cop. For laughs. Beverly Hills Cop. Roxanne. Um, um, you know, Tom Smothers calls me to, to write for them in their in in the um, the, the summer replacement series the Smothers Brothers did. I things sort of happening. A lot of good things were happening to me, and then, like you said, I got up to just just for laughs, and I come off the gala show, and and my agent's like, I'm going in right now, and make a deal for you for a network. You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they want to make a network deal, do a show for about you. You know, take a sitcom with you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so all those things, I got so much good feedback within you know two years. A lot of good feedback. I mean, the first, I, like, I did a summer tour, though, you know. I had to, I call it my rehab tour, uh-huh. where, like, I got sober in May, but I, I didn't have any work, you know, really. So, um, Comedy Zone um, gave me, like, a five-week tour of, like, one-nighters, one-nighters, and out, outside, there wasn't their main Charlotte room, or all these little places in the South. I got a rental car, and I just drove around for, like, five weeks in the summer, sort of rehabilitating my my uh, reputation and, uh-huh. and getting my, getting 
you know, performing, you know, instead of like struggling at the improv every night, I was out there doing those shows and, and getting better again, you know, getting sober, uh, uh, comedy under my belt. So that's, uh, that's another thing I wanted to ask you. You're, you're back in that world. There's a lot of drinking and drug usage. Did you continue to just hit meetings a lot? Can stay connected oh with your sponsor? I, like, yeah. He gave me a he gave me a uh, a shoebox filled with cassette tapes of speakers, and uh, and they they were great. They helped me tremendously. And I was under instruction. I called, you know, a lot of these one nighters. I drive at night. I get into town, and sometimes they had a noon or early meeting I could go to. You know, that sort of thing, because uh, my shows that night. So I couldn't really do too many night shows. And I had a night off in between. Sometimes I did. I was always reaching out for help. Yeah. No matter where I went. And that's, you know, I, that's I how it's done, dude. I mean, like, right. Yeah, like, like it just, that's a great blueprint for a life like that. Like I got a buddy who's uh, a bartender. Well, he actually manages yeah. bars. He's been in the restaurant industry forever and he just got sober about three months ago. And my thing was like, Hey, like I'm, I think you can do whatever you want to do as long as you work a strong program. Uh, yeah. I, there's, there's yeah. nowhere we can't go. Right. That's the idea of this whole thing. Yeah. I heard a guy say once, you know, uh, recovery 12 step. It's not a bridge to, it's not a tunnel to more meetings. It's a bridge to life. Yeah. It's a great, great analogy. I had just, you know, that whole thing of, uh, to, to me, it was, it put it, I put it like I, everything everybody told me, you know, like you're there for a reason. I go into the bar, right? It's a bar. I'm working bars. I go into the comedy club. I do my show and I would leave, man. I wouldn't hang out. I mean, I went out of there like the house is on fire. <laughs> Singleness of purpose. Yeah, right. Singleness of purpose. I'd get out of there. I'd go right back to the hotel, whatever. I'd go out to eat with somebody if they, they were there. Were usually somebody else who was sober or whatever come around, uh, one reason or another, and uh, and I'd hang out. I just hung out with different people. I mean, I, that, you know, I had a slip where I went back into Atlanta. Uh, I've had about, about, about 44 days sober, about, 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 yeah, about, yeah, about 44. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's a good, idea. that's a good alcoholic. You remember yeah. exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I, I went to Atlanta, which used to be a problem for me. And I, I insisted on hanging out with the people I used to hang out with after the show. You know, in fact, I said, you know what? I'll cut up the lines of cocaine. Give me something to do. I'm real good at that. And I'm also good at deciding how how big a line you should have. You know, so I, that's what I decided. And of course, you know, I went out. I mean, a, a tray of drinks came up with an extra Heineken on it, which is my beer of choice. Yeah. And I was off and running for a week, and uh, it was a lesson. It was a lesson. I got lucky that I got back. You know, and and I got back to L.A. and I I just rededicated myself and did everything I was told to do, and that that's what it was. I mean, I got advice that I took as commandments. <laughs> I yeah. Not yeah. to go back there again, because that week out was a hell. It was totally a hell, man. Because every line of cocaine, I was like, shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> every, every shot of whiskey, like that was a mistake. I mean, <laughs> there was no, there was not one bit of gleeful party left in me. It was <laughs> not one. Uh, so when you keep going, I mean, what's it like? What's it like for people that don't know? Uh, you're on the set of Beverly Hills Cop too. Um, you're around Eddie Murphy, who there's no bigger star at that at that point. I, no. Yeah. No. What's it like for you as a sober guy to be like, wow, here here I am. Uh, that's got to yeah, be pretty yeah. incredible. I'm at the Playboy Mansion. It was funny. You know, Eddie's like, hey, come hang out. They had a situation where they 
they, it was, it was fun. I was, I was getting bold, you know, I was getting bold in all the right, right ways. Yeah. So Eddie and I, he said, come hang out. They, they had a delay. They had, they're, they're not ready for Eddie on the, the scene. He was supposed to do. So he's out of his trailers in the back. We're in the back of the Playboy mansion. So he got to where they have these, all these geese or whatever, you know, he's feeding them. He got some bread. Sifton goes and gets bread and he's feeding the geese or whatever. And then uh, they say, yeah, we're ready for you now, Eddie. And he goes, well, I'm not ready for you. Because uh, <laughs> you know, they made him wait. And I'm standing there saying, so oh, that's pretty good power. Yeah. So finally, they, 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 they were up there waiting, you know, and he goes up and we do the scene. And uh, in the background, they had a, a whole bunch of uh, uh, Playboy bunnies who were um, playmates, whatever, doing playing volleyball, right? The, and behind where the scene was being shot. I shot for like two days. I think I was on the screen for like 10 seconds. Okay. So, so, they can, so they're, they're doing their, they're, they're playing volleyball and the director keeps yelling, you know, jump higher. You know, he wants to get the jiggle going. He wants to get the jiggle. Going. They're all in bikinis, you know? So finally I said to Eddie, I said, Eddie, there's too much silicone out there to get the jiggle going. And he does his Eddie Murphy laugh. Right? And the director goes, what? And Eddie tells him, he said, Shiner, because he goes, Shiner just said there's too much silicone out there to get the jiggle you want. And the director went, oh, you're right. All right, let's move along. <laughs> so I was like, I, and, he, and the guy, then the guy was like, you know, to me, the rest of the day, I knew him in English. Hey, Shiner, come here. <laughs> the director was like, yeah, okay, talk. And, and you know, so I was getting bold in the right way. Yeah, that's, and you, because you, it takes balls to, to, to roll the dice on a joke like that, probably, you know, on a movie yeah. set. And it's like, but. Right. Yeah, you, you have yeah. that self-esteem. You do esteem-building things, right? And, and you have that self-esteem. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you make amends yeah. to your dad, and then he ends up getting sober. You know, some of those development deals, I mean, they didn't work out, right? I mean, they did because you, <laughs> no. you got money. But what's the I got money, man. Yeah. What's yeah. the closest you came? Yeah. Uh, we, had a, we had a series I did with a guy named Rick Dukeman, God rest his soul. He was a, a very funny comedian. He was a heavy guy. They had a great idea for a series which is almost like what my role could have been on. I was supposed to be on my, uh, uh, excuse me, um, married with children was, uh, he was going to be a single, my best friend who was still single while I'm married, trying to live the married life. He's having the single life, right? Okay. Does whatever he wants to do with yeah. whoever he wants to do it, whatever he wants to do it. Right. So, uh, uh, that was called buddies. I think it was ABC. Here's one of his lessons to show this. I think it was ABC. I had, I had, done uh off all the networks by the time i was finished i'd done like five pilots i think it was wow. five or something but all, at the time there were four networks fox nbc abc cbs i'd done them all and then abc second time and um so they the, when we were shooting this thing the executives were like, oh, and the producers are like oh my gosh this is so funny and so good if if abc doesn't want it we already know cbs has already contacted us nbc's contacted they want it. They want it first option. They want. They want a shot at. It. They want it. They want it. So we. We. We're. If. If. ABC doesn't pick us up for a full. No problem. You know? No. Of course, ABC doesn't pick it up. Then you go. What happened to NBC? No, they're not interested. <laughs> both CBS want it. They don't want. They want. It's damaged goods. <laughs> how do you? So how do you deal with with failure and sobriety like that? You no, know, like the same. You know, my. I. I learned as I learned from the Merv Griffin episode that I'm supposed to show up suit up and show up and do the best I can and let the rest go. Yeah. And that's all I ever did. And it, and it was disappointing along the way. You, you still, it's hard. It's like I, somebody once said, yeah, I let things go, but you can see my claw marks. On. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I let things go after they beat me over the head with it for about a half an hour, you know? Uh, but I 
learned those lessons all along the way. And because I kept cut, showing up to learn more and kept repeating it, the, the good habits I had, that it became, you know, okay, well, that, there's something else coming. I mean, I, I've heard that so many times and I started experiencing it. You know, okay, there's something else coming. I mean, when I left, pilot didn't go. I had a kid. Yeah. So I'm out on the road, and and uh, and my agent William Morris dropped me after that last pilot. And there's there's nothing here for you in L.A. But here here's a bunch of dates. We're not going to give you commission. They gave me like you know 20, 20 dates. You know they go no commission. Don't worry about it. It's like a parting gift. You know the game show where you got blown out. <laughs> here's your parting gift. No 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 commissions on these gigs. So um, so I go out. The first thing I do is Charleston, South Carolina. You there? Allison, you there? Did we lose his audio? Was that on our end? Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. I lost you for a second. Okay, well, anyway, I go out to William Morris Drops. Yeah, okay. Give me these gigs. First one I go out is Charleston, South Carolina. It's a new sports bar across from a new minor league hockey rink, whatever the year was, 91, 92, the Eagles health is over at four. It was endless. They're playing across the street. The hockey place is packed and our bar is packed and the comedy club and the upstairs of the bar is packed. And I get on stage and, and this guy starts heckling me. Really good heckling though. <laughs> Smart. Knew when, knew when to come in, knew when to back off. I do a run of jokes. I stopped at Paul, take a drink of water He'd come back with more heckling. We're both getting big laughs for our heckling and our repartee. I mean, it's like a team. We're like a comedy team. The end of the show, manager comes over and says, you know who that was heckling? I said, no, I have no idea. He said, that's Sean Penn. No. Sean Penn. What's he doing in Charleston, South Carolina? On a Tuesday? You know what I mean? Well, apparently Sean was doing a movie down there. had come to see the Eagles, expecting it to be, you know, party time. In the, in, but they were on their – the, the rehab leg of their tour, right? So instead of cocaine and women backstage, it's, you know, sushi and fruit juice. Yeah. So so he, he comes across to see what's going on at the comedy room. And we, he wants to hang out with you. So we hang out all night long, him and I hanging out, telling stories, joking, got a little audience in the manager's office. I'm just drinking Diet Cokes and smoking cigarettes or whatever. Yeah. In the night, five in the morning, I'm done, man. I got to go home, got back to the hotel. He goes, oh, before you go, I got to say something to you, man. I got to say something. And I think he's going to go, you and me need to do a movie, man, right? <laughs> he, goes, he goes, you need to move to Los Angeles. I go, I've lived in Los Angeles for 10 years. <laughs> I thought he knew who I was. <laughs> he you, just thought he stumbled across a funny guy in South Carolina. That's what he thought. You could be somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says you mean Los Angeles. So I go back to my room. I go, I'm not getting anywhere. I got a kid, so uh, you know, and I know a new, you know, wife. And I'm, what am I doing out here? So this is again somebody I know who's sober. That so, and I, the next day when I talk and he complains, he says, "Look, man, you you like to write. Everybody thinks you're a good writer. Why don't you go write for TV? Get off the road, man. Do something else." Got me into a TV writing career. I call up. I take direction. I call up everybody I know who's got a sitcom. They're in the middle of the production year, so I'm not looking for a job right then. I'm just looking to set something up for next fall, right? This is like February, March. I call up Tim Allen, Roseanne, Seinfeld. I need messages. 
Roseanne calls me back that night, says, you want a job? I love you. Come tomorrow at the studio. I had a job the next day. I just did what I was told to do. Wow. I just took some direction. How did you like writing? And, and that, that disappointment led me. I love writing. But yeah. it was a big adjustment. Again, a huge adjustment to become a sitcom writer as opposed to stand-up where you're running everything. You know, you're in control of everything. It's your stand-up. And I was, you know, at the end of the line, new guy in writing. I had to, you know, start over again in a way. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So what was that like being sober out there for that whole second act? If you could kind of put a bow on it, like, you know, all the people you came in contact with, you, you had to have helped a lot of people. I would imagine. This is what I got a chance to see other comics. Now there are comics that are sober today who said, you know, you helped me get sober. That's huge to me. And I was able to, and I, there's people in the audiences. I mean, a guy just celebrated three years yesterday who I, I, he said, you know, you started working with me 30 years ago. You didn't know it. And he contacted huh. me from time to time. He said, you never, I'd say, oh, I'm off, uh, and you never say, Hey, you got to quit. And I, you just go, Hey, I feel great today, man. Sorry. You're hung over. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he got three years now and he, he'll, he'll, you know, there's, it, it has been an unbelievable ability. Going, I've made friends in towns where I went and met people because they were like-minded doing the same things I was doing. Mm-hmm. And those friendships, they weren't like, you know, friends you used to make when I was, I, I don't remember guys who I, who, who were Coke dealers. And we were rock stars coming through town. You know, we met every Coke dealer in town. Yeah. You know, I don't remember any of them. I don't have any relations with them, but a lot of other people that, helped me um, stay sober while I was in Atlanta or Austin, Texas or whatever that I'm still in contact with, still friends. With. Did, did, did Kennison lean on you when he was trying to get sober? Yeah. 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 My first one, he's, you know, it's like a, a lot of guys or other guys that got sober and they go, I want you to sponsor. I say, I can't sponsor you. Man. I'm too, too close to you on this. And, and he found something else, but I'd always talk to him. He had a problem that, and I said this to somebody else anyway. I said this on this TV show I just did an interview for. He had a problem that um, that Greg Giraldo had a, had a bit of a problem when I talked to him once. That guys who were um, having a hard time with thinking that they they you know I had this feeling. I told him this. You know, you feel like you've grown out of jokes. That was part of like losing my sense of humor. I felt like I'd, I I couldn't write anything anymore, and I was out. Sam Tennyson felt like he couldn't top his necrophilia bit that he had. Yeah. Um, remember that bit? It's a great classic bit. Oh, yeah, and it keeps going and going. going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It never ends. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, that, you know, that I was trying to explain to him about that once you once you put that down, all those drugs and alcohol, you'll have a new way to get, uh, you know, material. You'll have a whole new influx of material from a different perspective. You know, I kept talking about that. Also, um, had a hard time giving up that certain people had become bigger stars than them. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that whole thing of like, I go, look, <laughs> you know, that ability to just show up and do your job and not worry about what everybody else is doing or how they were doing, it's huge. I mean, I, you try to explain to them that, look, I've seen so many people blow by me. Look, Jeff Foxworthy was my MC at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm writing for him later and grateful that I could write for him. You know, I mean, um, everybody has to just come, you kind of accept what, what, where you get, but 
Keniston had a real hard time with with um, other, other people becoming bigger stars or drawing bigger, whether it was Dice Clay or whatever at the time. Um, yeah, he had he had had things that could not let go in his mind. But he was struggling and trying to. He was trying. He kept showing up. I mean, he he might, he might be passed out in the doorway, but he was trying to get in the room. He was trying to 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 uh, uh, do it. You know, when he died in a car crash, he was trying. And that's but, an know, example of how lucky we are. I know, I know, I know. I mean, it's like the same thing. Of I, I the, the the drugs seem like they're they're even more um, dangerous yeah. than when I was out there, you know? Um, yeah. A fentanyl was another thing that was not in our equation was not anything you had to consider when you've got cocaine, <laughs> you can't, yeah. you worry about baby powder, too much baby powder, yeah. you know, too much laxative, yeah. you know, if you're running to the bathroom all the time, you're, you're more regular than you got high, but there was no, there was no, um, fentanyl. I mean, and I was, I was talking to my brother this past weekend about it. He's sober too. And he was, you know, a buddy of his went for a bachelor party and died. Uh, you know, this is not a, this is not an alcoholic, a guy who partied, you know, and uh, did some did some coke, yeah. and it was laced with fentanyl, and he's dead. Uh, yeah. it, the stakes are even higher. I mean, they're they're high enough. Yeah. Anytime you, you yeah. take a drink or a drug, and you're an alcoholic, but now it's like it's a war zone out there. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things different. I mean, obviously, that the 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 drunk driving ethos changed in America. You know, back in the early part of the '80s, where I was in the height of my addiction and, and, and the clubs were just opening, they let you do as long as you want to do. They weren't selling alcohol to the audience. So they let you do long shows. They didn't care. Yeah. They just wanted to sell liquor, you know, and then that changed. And for me, it changed. I mean, I quit drinking. So about 85 or so the clubs started becoming responsible and they were doing time shows, you know, they would have the checks dropped at a certain time and all that sort of thing. But, um, all those, dangers that we had from I mean drunk driving was probably the biggest danger not fentanyl yeah seriously uh, a couple more thoughts for you before I let you get out of here what made you decide to kind of come out per se and 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 speak out um about recovery and stuff like that because it's important yeah well there were a couple of things that happened there were some books that came out when we first got sober I can't remember and then I got them stashed away somewhere they're not out on my recovery shelf here, but there were, there were things that people, you know, we, we did where we were able to um, do it with anonymity and talk about it in a, in a, in a, in a general way about addiction. All they were those from the beginning, but they were um, um, just, a, uh, if I could help somebody, I mean, I didn't, as long as I can do it in an anonymous way and mm-hmm. say, Hey, you know, if you want to talk to me personally, I can tell you what I did, uh, the help I got to get sober, it was always a part of it, especially because comics tend to be so, like, you know, you know, tend to be rebellious. We tend to be um, uh, loners, you know. Um, and so I felt like it was really important that I, I let other people know that, you know, I, I never was anonymous in my personal relationship with people in terms of my sobriety. You know, I didn't care who knew. They certainly... I certainly didn't care who knew when I was drinking and doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so I didn't care who knew that I was now sober. I mean, people, there were people who shunned me. There were, honestly. 
you know, I lost a job because of it, an, an acting job. I got a producer hired me when I was drinking and drugging. I got sober. I no longer came up to his house and partied. And then there was a, there was a show cast that was cast as the lead and got fired and somebody else put in the lead and the show went on the air. Wow. So, I, mean, I, I, I didn't care. It's like that, that, if that's, the, if that's it, what it takes, if, if, if me drinking and drugging is, is going to be the prerequisite for that job, then I'm, I don't want the job anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. It becomes, you know, becoming sober is like the number one core value for me. I, it, it was it. When I'm working it. it right. And I was modeled that. Yeah. I was modeled that by other people too. I saw other guys. I saw a guy who, who had a big tour thing going and that guy was going to put the money up for it and be the producer and all, but he wanted him to drink and do drugs with him. And that guy was sober. He said, nah. And he, the, the tour ended, you know I mean? Wow. Yeah. What's uh, before last thing? So you you told a story once, or, or it's, I think it's in your book, "Kicking Through the Ashes," or maybe it's in the, the first one. Is I killed right? I killed was the one that Mark Schiff and I did. We were, we compiled all these stories. Yeah, that was and yeah. "Kicking Through the Ashes." One I wrote. Um, yeah, these books are awesome. You can find them on Amazon. We'll I'll I'll link all that stuff in your website. But who is this guy? I'd never heard of this guy. The guy Ali Joe. Oh, Ali Joe. Was- Jesus. What you know, the hell? He was, he was the first. Yeah, he was. He was a guy who you were talking about a road wreck. He was one of those guys. He was, un, see, back then I told you in the beginning of the eighties, the club owners were more interested in how much liquor you could sell. They had packed houses. They didn't care. You didn't have to draw. They 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 had packed houses. So they wanted guys that would hot. get people to drink almost. Now, who's going to sell the drink? You go to town, they go, Ollie Joe just sold $16,000 worth of liquor. I'm like, well, my liver can't take that, but I'll do the best I can. <laughs> they would drink on stage. They would drink with the audience. I would I would wait until I had it all mastered, you know, an hour into the show. Then I'd go, oh, give me a beer, you know. Then I could, I could get off without becoming a mess, right? And I might have one or two shots up there and blah, blah, blah. But these guys would drink from the get-go. Ollie Joe would come into town and – they would have an and and uh, probably a quarter ounce waiting for him and a, and a dozen quaaludes. A quarter ounce were, of coke. You know, yeah, yeah, a quarter ounce of coke, and and a dozen quaaludes would be waiting for him. And of course, this was taken out of his pay at the end of the week. That's why a lot of times these guys would go to get their pay, and they after all the draws they'd taken during the week, they would go like, "Here's five dollars." <laughs> <laughs> out of a couple grand, really, literally, him and John Fox were notorious road animals and parties, and. So this one night in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh uh, had two comedy clubs early on. I was working the one in the suburbs, and they only had two shows that night. And Ali Joe had three shows downtown. So I was coming in to party with the, the people. This is back in like 80, 81, 82. I was coming in to party with the, the club owners and, and meet Ali Joe. I'd never met him before and, and had heard about him. So when I got there, Ollie Joe, you could tell me, and he was in his act, the third act, third show, he's into it, but he was messed up. I could see him swaying up there, and he's drinking shots, and he's bleeding from the nose. He starts bleeding from the nose. He doesn't notice it, and he's wiping his nose, right, with his sleeve. He's got a white shirt on, white sleeve, so he's got blood streaking. What is the crowd doing? The ringsiders start going, oh, you know, they, they may have never been to a comedy show, but they were pretty sure blood wasn't supposed to be part of it, you know? <laughs> They had, they had seen this and, and they start, and finally Ollie Joe sees the reaction and he looks down and sees his sleeve is all bloody. And he goes, this is a classic line. He goes, what you fuckers don't party. <laughs> <laughs> and those were the kind and, of guys out there. Yeah. 
So he does one more shot. So he's like, all right, everybody, another shot. And here's where the quaaludes and the alcohol overcame the cocaine. And he sways back and doesn't come forward, man. He just goes, bam, falls back. And he's still got the microphone in his hand. And he's still talking like kind of, he's like kind of mumbling. <laughs> and he just went out. And he was a little guy. He looked like Yosemite Sam, a cartoon character. He'd have, he was like, he was a, he was Larry the Cable Guy before Larry the Cable Guy. He had like a real redneck uh, trucker um, uh, cowboy act, you know. Yeah. And he had a cowboy hat and he had cowboy boots. And all you see is the bottom of these cowboy boots and you hear it. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs> and the club runner runs over and says, we got to get him off and you got to finish the show. Oh, you did. So we run up. We run up. Four or five people. He's a heavy guy. man. He was a big guy, like short round. And four guys carry him off. Literally carry him off. I pick up the mic and I turn to you and I say, "Hi, folks, how you doing?" It's like as if nothing happened. It's like we're sharks' teeth. A comic pops out, another one pops up. Yeah. And I just start doing the act, and and later, I found out that I put Polly Joe in the owner's car. He had a Trans Am or something, and they drive him back to the Viking Motel. That's where we're staying. This little Viking Motel, and they said they pull Polly Joe up to the to the to the hotel and he finally wakes up and he goes, well, what's going on? <laughs> I'm going to party. He said, no, the party's over here. No. And he starts kicking the car. Cash. I mean, he, he, he literally died in the streets. He never got sober. Yeah. There were people who tried to help him. He got, he just couldn't quit eating and drinking. And he got very, very big and morbidly. And it's just, it was, it was, you know, that's what did him in. A lot of guys, right. I would assume, we're just loving being on the road because they go from town to town. It's like literally one step ahead, one step ahead of the sheriff. There, you, you got the right, and you could. I mean, as I could lie. I could lie about my 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 disease. I could lie about my addiction. I'd go into town, and first night, of course, somebody break up the cocaine. I go, oh, cocaine, man! I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> you know, right? Like it's a treat. Yeah. But I've just burned out my nose in the town before. You know? Yeah. I mean, no, it's all lies, lies, absolutely. All right. So, last thing, what do you tell somebody? that comes in, they're trying to get sober, that's just trying to get one day. What do you tell them? Just get the one day, man. Just get the one day. That's the only day that counts. That one day, just get that one day. That's all it is. That was the biggest gift that I got was being able to break it down to one day at a time. To break it down to just now, this moment. Just don't, there were, there were days when I first got sober where it'd be like, a minute at a time, I'd call up people. I'd go, I remember going like four or five places in a row looking for the answer to something. And all I was doing was just just not drinking, not doing drugs, and making it through that day. That's all. That's all that mattered. I got in fist fights sober. Oh, they're the worst. I didn't drink that day. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's all that mattered. I'd get like, my people, friends, are like, oh, that's fantastic. You didn't drink over that. You know what I mean? Yeah, but my, my look at my eye. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't drink. It's fantastic. And you have three kids, right? Yeah. That's great. And and they get to see their dad sober. They never did. I wish they, I wish I could say they never saw me being an asshole, but they <laughs> did never see me. They did never see me drink or do drugs, and that's what I hold on to. You're right. That's the, that's the most important thing. Welcome to the human race, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They always got a chance to see me, and they got a chance to see me also make amends for when I was, my behavior was bad. 
and I've always been able to do that, and we got great relationships. Rich, thank you so much, man. I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, you know, thank I, you. it's been a pleasure. You've been a blast to talk to. Yeah, thanks, man. You're a blast. I appreciate it. And you do, are you familiar with Todd Glass? Yeah. So Todd's, my, yeah, he's a he's a really good family friend of ours. I'm from I'm from right outside Philly. And uh, uh, so I've known Todd. I mean, holidays and stuff. He's a, he's a good dude. He's a piece of work, right? He's, he's a great guy. Oh, yeah. I, you know, every time so I used to do this joke on my act. Yeah, ask Todd about this. Okay. I used to do this joke on my act where I said there were so many comedians at the time. I did this thing. You can look it up on YouTube. It's called Gagway, where there's so many comics. I said comics eventually go door to door, you know? Uh-huh. And just This is what I was doing. My bit. I did this. This ended up being a video I did for Fox called Gagway. I said comics will eventually just, just get a flatbed truck. And drive around the country, pulling into the Dairy Queen parking lot. Comedy tonight, comedy tonight. Get a couple of bug zappers up on the back of that flatbed truck, and you do a little show, and then move on to the next town, right? So one night the improv, Todd comes up and goes, "You know, I bet you do about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can I do that? I go, What do you mean? You want to do the bit? No, no. I actually want to do a flatbed truck and just drive around doing shows." <laughs> I said, sure, yeah, not doesn't but I don't care. Yeah, funny. Rich, in in, in, in a small world uh situation. Yeah. So my this is probably in the nineties, uh probably mid to late nineties. My parents are away. I guess it's the early nineties. Todd is out with my brothers at this bar called Smokey Joe's in Philly getting drunk. He comes back to my parents' house, sets up that flatbed in the driveway, and starts doing comedy <laughs> at three AM. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. My, 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 my mom and my late father say thank you very much. <laughs> well, I might have saved him a little time, but I think he eventually would have figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Rich man. He, he's, one of those, he's one of those guys, man. He, he is not, not going to be deterred from putting on the show. <laughs> well, what a small world, dude. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That's a small world. Yeah. That's a funny. You actually had the, a story about the flatbed truck. Shit, oh man. my god, that's great! Fucking great. <laughs> Tell him I said hello. You got it, Rich, and I appreciate you, man. I'll shoot you this link and, in a couple had, days. And he had, he had one bit that I heard like, like a couple of years ago. This <laughs> about 10, 15 years ago. He said he sees a bird. He's driving through a shitty neighborhood, and he sees a bird. He's like, why are you living here? You can live anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. I that yeah, he's very funny. All right, man. Thanks, uh, all right, Rich. Thanks, dude. Appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.